Welcome back, everybody, to another installment of TKW Podcast. Uh, we're your hosts. I'm Anthony Corbo. I'm Kyle Maggio. And we're joined today by Chris Herring from 538. What's going on, man? Not much. How are you guys? Doing pretty well. Pretty well. Good. Good. Um, so let's hop right back into it. It's been a couple of games since we talked last, Kyle. Uh, it's been a, We last talked during that Heat game. They ended up pulling that off, so big ups there. Uh, and then got slaughtered by the Cavaliers and then followed it up by some kind of a performance last night that ended up in a win. Um, so, yeah, what, what are we seeing? What do you guys see? Well, I mean, what do we have? Two good mellow games? And then uh, in, in between, we had that stinker with eight points? Yeah. Well, so that's kind of been the the uh, the meaning of the season, though, hasn't it? Been inconsistency for mellow. Um I don't. I don't quite know if he uh, if he's going to, or that he's trying to be this week, or if he's going to be the eight point game scorer he was just showing the other day. But uh, yeah, I guess we did get two good mellow games out of it. Let's look on the bright side there. Yeah. Um, no, I mean he just he had that little bit of a slump, but then I mean it was nice to see him kind of rebound outside of the Cavs game. I, I like what I see. Um, it just it's unfortunate it happens at a time when KP's kind of struggling, but yeah, we'll we'll get the two of them together too. It's just interesting, you know. I kind of see why he's going off so offensively with Rose out of the lineup and everything like that. But there's a uh, yeah, this there's some issues going pretty deep here. And the, the funniest part about it all is that you know we have KP struggling, we got Rose out with injury, we got. Yo, Melo giving us a couple of 35 games and giving us an eight-point game, too. And the team was 4-1 and one this week. Overall, it's not that bad, but I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm more, I wouldn't say concerned about Melo, but I'm just trying to get a feel for where he's at, I guess, because last year, I mean, Chris, like, is there any differences that you see between Melo's approach last year to this year? Because it's... Maybe is it Rose or, you know, KP taking a bigger role, but he just seems to be kind of really trying to feel himself out, and it's kind of – it's really hit or miss so far. Well, I think part of it is, like you said, it's KP stepping up, but it's – I mean, Melo's kind of been on a downward trend the last couple of years anyway of taking fewer shots. Um, and I think what you're seeing now is that sometimes it really manifests itself, like, all at once. Um, you know, I, I remember there was one game I wasn't even watching – and I saw everybody tweeting, like, it looks like Melo's trying to pull a Kobe, basically, where he, you know, there's been criticism of his game or, you know, him taking too many shots, and now he's not taking any shots at all. And so he went, like, the entire first quarter of one game without taking a shot or almost the entire first quarter. And I think he's kind of picking his spots a little bit differently. Um, some of it is, you know, you've got not a ball-dominant point guard, but you have a point guard that, really runs the offense or, or not the offense, but runs the pick and roll a lot. And it's not always mellow touching the ball. I kind of touched on that in some of the preview material I wrote this year that um, right. Rose, when he was in Chicago, he passed the ball to Pau Gasol more than anybody on that team. And the same is kind of true here where Rose kind of looks for KP. He's more of a natural pick and roll partner than with Mello. Um, and so Mello sometimes like, I mean, we kind of, a lot of us saw this coming. A lot of people had questions about whether KP would be kind of the odd man out. Um, and in some cases he is, and, and people always are vocal about that when it happens. But other times I think it's going to be mellow. And sometimes it takes mellow a while to catch a rhythm. But if he's not the main person that the offense is running through all the time, it's going to take him longer to catch a rhythm sometimes. And sometimes he's not going to find it. Yeah, I think it's kind of funny. Um, you know, you mentioned Melo just picking his spots more with the team and also him just doing different things. I mean, you know, his games evolved to become a little bit more well-rounded with rebounding and assisting. Uh, maybe a little bit more so a couple of years ago, but still definitely true now. Um, and I think that does have a lot to do with the personnel around him. 
Um, so just kind of taking a look, the Knicks are six and nine when they're playing teams that are above five hundred, and seven and one when they're up against teams who are under five hundred. How much do you do you see? How much is uh, the success of this team is based around them just playing weaker competition, or is it something about having the guys on the court together? Is it really that much with who's Mello, who Melo is playing with that's going to let him, you know, um, succeed? I guess. I, I honestly think that it's helpful. Obviously, you know, some people will look at that and say, "Oh, that's you know, we're kind of garbage against better competition." I mean, th- being anywhere near five hundred against teams that are better than 500 um if you can hold anywhere near the the mark that they have against teams that are way worse than that you'll make the playoffs with that sort of record you know that the the trouble was before that it seemed like the Knicks would really play hard in games against teams they had no business beating and then lose but then they'd also play down to their competition and lose games against weaker teams but if they're gonna if they can really clean up against bad teams you know that's a way to kind of jump into the playoff conversation and maybe to be a top four seed. I don't think they're going to be a top four seed, but they could potentially do that if they're really going to beat up on teams that are weaker and occasionally take down a team that's better. Um, yeah, I, I think I agree with everything you're saying there. Because it's like the way that um, I'm looking at these numbers right now and like the sheet of paper in front of me, and I'm seeing you know, seven and one versus 500 clearly puts them in the position that at the beginning of this year, no one knew what they were going to be. Right. Everyone thought that they might be one of those you know, bottom dwelling teams. And so looking at that number kind of like tells me, you know, they're not they're not elite. They're not competing with any of the top, you know, the Cavaliers or Golden State as far as how confident they'll be in the regular season. But they're definitely not one of those bottom dwelling teams. I'm just I'm curious as to where you kind of position them right now. Mm, you know, probably I've said this before. I, I, I probably see them as a back end playoff team. You know, I, before the season started, I think I sent out a tweet saying that I had them right at 42 I had them at 31 last year. They finished with 32. Um, and so, I mean, I think, you know, I think that they have enough talent to make it. Uh, the question a lot of us had was, you know, whether you could blend the talent to make it work and whether these guys really could play well off each other, whether they could stay healthy. And now what we're seeing, and I think it's not what Nick fans wanted to see and not what Phil wants to see, certainly, is that Noah, in some cases, they played a lot better when he's out. And, um, in some cases, it actually might be to their benefit when he's not able to play because it opens up the floor for KP to play the five. And if O'Quinn is going to give them what he's given them, you know, in the last week and a half or so, you kind of don't need someone of Noah's caliber to step in and play, especially for the shortcomings he has on offense. And so, you know, it, it depends on, you know, how well they continue to play, how much Rose continues to play, if he can kind of keep up what he's been doing lately. Um, is KP going to hit a cold spell like he did last year? Um, it's not reasonable to think that he'll play as well as he has all year, you know, going forward. He struggled a little bit lately, um, you know, and, and do, do these guys stay healthy? Do the, I, I think really you have three main guys that need to stay healthy. I'm, I'm at a point now where I'm not even sure no one needs to, which, you know, that's not a knock on him. I see that. Yeah. It's not, it's not a knock on him at all, but I mean, I, my first question for Noah when I talked with him this year and then my first question for Hornacek about Noah was what role do you see him playing in the offense? Because he does have some short, he's, he's very skilled on that end. He's one of the best passers you have at that size, but he also is a liability in the sense that teams can kind of ignore him defensively if he's out at the elbow, that they just don't come guard him. And then you're essentially playing four on five sometimes. Right. Um, and so that that's that those are some of my questions. And if he's not there, I mean, you kind of do have to guard O'Quinn. O'Quinn is not quite the passer that Noah is, but O'Quinn will hit a jump shot if you leave him open from 17 feet, whereas Noah will give it five seconds of thought because he, he really doesn't want to take that shot. He seems like he's kind of self-conscious about the way his shot looks. You kind of see it reflected at the free throw line with him as well. So, I mean, there are all sorts of questions that I've got, but I mean, at the end of the day, I see them being probably more likely like a six or a seven um, because I think they've kind of played above their heads lately. I think teams will kind of catch up to what they're doing offensively. And I think it will come back to bite them in the butt eventually that they're not playing much defense at all. I don't think you can be a a bottom five defense unless you're like a top five offense. I don't think you can be a bottom five defense all year and really make a run at a top four or five seed. Well, piggybacking on that point that we were making about how they haven't played fantastic against, uh, you know, uh, teams that are above 500. 
I was playing around with the point differentials. And obviously, I think Knicks are, I, play, I tweeted it today, but the Knicks are one of only three playoff teams currently right now that have a negative, negative point yeah. differential. And I think they were negative like uh, 2.7. And then I think the Grizzlies and the Blazers were the other two. And Yeah, they're scoring. Currently, the Knicks are looking at 104.2 points per game, and they're being outscored. Uh, it's Their opponents are scoring 106.9. It's about well, the it, same on per 100 possessions, too. Well, the, th- the interesting thing that I found was, yes, the Cavs are the Cavs, and yes, if you actually want to be a, some sort of a contender, you need to be able to at least compete with them. But if you take away those two disgusting blowout games, I think the their, to- their total point differential at the time before this last Kings game was like negative 67 or something. And if you took those away, it was like negative three, which still isn't great, mm-hmm. you know, but it looks worse when you get blown out by the champs. So I think I kept seeing the point differential, uh, point differential get brought up in terms of the Knicks being taken seriously because obviously they were talking about, you know, the offense not playing that well. And if the defense is bad, it's going to catch up to you. But I just found that a little bit interesting. So while it was still bad, it was not as bad. It's not telling the whole story. I mean, I mean yeah. yeah, you have to, you have to, if you're going to reference their um, point differential, you have to make note of the fact that, almost that entire margin comes from those two games, the, the opener and the last game they played against the Cavs. But, I mean, people use point differential to kind of indicate if a team is maybe better than they've shown. Um, like a good example, the Minnesota is a team that looks really good when you look at point differential compared to their record. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've written about them. I think a lot of people have noticed they have been like historically bad in third quarters where they're getting (laughs) per 100 possessions. They're getting outscored by like at one point they're getting outscored by more than 30 points per 100 possessions in third. Like, I don't even know how that's possible, but they were also the best first half team in the league. Um, So, I mean, they are kind of due to, to be better than they have been so far. Um, Does it mean they're a playoff team? Not necessarily, but it also means that like, I mean, I, I think point differential is a pretty good metric to get a sense. I mean, it might tell you a lot about the Knicks too, that yes, that they can beat up on a lot of other teams, but then when they play real contenders, um, like real contenders, meaning like a top two seed from each conference, that they're probably not going to really hang around and and be much of a threat to those sorts of teams. Yeah. I kind of want to jump back into something we were talking about earlier with uh, Noah and just kind of how he's being used in the game. Um, I I agree that I was kind of getting used to the, Noah not really going out in the end of the game and, uh, you know, the closing lineups and seeing out Quinn out there. I kind of saw, I thought there was a little bit of, um, you know, some chemistry developing there, but I am, I'm just, I'm still curious as to how this whole center rotation is going to, going to end up. Cause you still have, you got Noah who you don't know who, what he's really going to give you on any given night. You know, you're hoping for some good defense. You're hoping like last night he could be solid with free throws and, uh, you know, not be a liability at least on offense. Then you have O'Quinn, who's been good for the last week and a half, as you know everyone's been watching knows. Um, and you know, and then you still have Plumlee, who's a project, but you also have Billy, who didn't get any minutes last night either. I am just really curious how Hornacek is really get, how this will all pan out over the next quarter of a season or so. Who's going to get the you know share of the minutes? Kyle, you want to start? Oh well, I was just I was going to just piggyback another question on top of that to ask you because yeah O'Quinn's actually played pretty well and I think that's helped with Noah being out and Noah not playing as much but uh, also you know KP hasn't played well defensively at the five either yet and that's something that you know as much as you know we maybe clamor for seeing him at the five we don't want to rush him either and see him get beat up and maybe kind of ruin him too soon so I guess my question is where's the balance with or what's an ideal balance to have Noah contribute maybe in some shorter spurts and then spell him with O'Quinn and then, you know, maybe throw KP in at the five a little bit, but like, what, what do you think realistically could be done and, and would benefit them the most to kind of groom KP for the future while still getting good production out of Noah and squeezing whatever you can out of O'Quinn? I, I won't harp on it too much because I know the fans that listen to this will be like, Oh, he's bringing up the past. I mean, the, the ideal balance would have been keeping what they had last year when they were the second best yeah. protecting team in the league. Robin Lopez was your starting center, but KP. Yeah, I missed him. Yeah, I mean, it's, he's, he's been healthy. He's looked really good for the Bulls so far. Like, you watch what Bulls fans say about Lopez, and it, 
it's literally a carbon copy of what you all said last year. Yep. And um, he's been solid. And I mean, he's not. And to be quite honest, like part of the concern with Noah, as far as the way the media reports it and the way I think a lot of people think about it is ego. You know, Noah took issue with the fact that Hoiberg pulled him from the starting lineup last year with the Bulls. And, you know, that's an, a very obvious question. Maybe not if it doesn't happen this year, it's going to be an obvious question going forward if KP continues to progress and puts on more, not maybe not weight, but more bulk um, and is more able to help handle himself in the post uh, defensively, that you're going to start wondering, like, do we have to play Noah? And if we do, do we have to start him? And that's a much more comfortable question to be able to ask that sort of question of Lopez, who hasn't been an all-star and hasn't been a top five MVP finisher and doesn't have the sort of, you would think doesn't have the sort of ego that someone like Noah does and doesn't have a $72 million price tag either. Um, it's a much more natural question to ask there than it is of Noah, especially at the front end of his contract. So um, to get back to, to some of what you were talking about, I mean, I'm not totally sold on O'Quinn. I mean, I, I liked O'Quinn a lot when they signed him. I, I said, I thought it was a, a great signing for them. And then he kind of disappointed me and a lot of other people that, you know, he tries to, I think he's great when he kind of recognizes exactly what his role is supposed to be. When he um, focuses on um, making the relatively smart pass, the, the right pass as opposed to trying to needle a pass in there. Now he can do that, but it's like, it's probably, yeah, it's probably unsuccessful two out of every three times. Um, I, you don't need him to take threes. He's, he's comfortable 16 feet and in, then take that. You know, you don't have to be a, a complete floor spacer if that's not your game. He gets beat down the floor a lot. I mean, there's just a lot of things that he doesn't do. But when he does them and, and he does it, like, over the course of a whole game, you're like, man, this could be our sixth man. That, right. That's how good he is. Yeah, we've talked about that over and over again on the show before. Kyle O'Quinn seems to be a recurring character around here. But, <laughs> you know, it's funny. I'm, I think even... You know, I have years of watching Kyle O'Quinn now at this point to not be sold on Kyle O'Quinn. But I think when it comes, you know, coming to him and Billy at this point, I think I'm a little, I think I'm, I'm edging on O'Quinn more so than Hernan Gomez. I think that, yeah, I think he should be the rotation backup to, uh, backup five, which I think is really important over the next quarter of the season here to really start locking that rotation down. If they really, if they want to, if they're aspiring to be a playoff team, and we don't know if they are or not, but if they are aspiring to be a playoff team at this point, uh, I think it's just going to be vital to get uh, to get this rotation locked down with the next 20 games or so. Yeah, I think, um, you know, you, you asked the question before, like, what is the right balance for Porzingis? Um, and I, I honestly think that he... He, he needs to learn and he needs to, he needs to get some time there. It doesn't mean he needs to start there necessarily. And that no one needs to ride the bench. Um, it doesn't mean that you plug in an extra wing player and just, you know, pull Noah out or, or, you know, that you don't use O'Quinn there. But, um, you know, I, I think Hernan Gomez, I really like him. Uh, he probably needs to be out there with another big, he, he just isn't good enough defensively. Yeah, he's not nimble that. enough defensively. Um, he can rebound. Okay. But he's not, He's not a – I mean, he's, it's difficult to play defense in the NBA. It's very difficult to kind of come over and guard guys that have certain – I mean, he's if he, if he could do what he does defensively on offense – or I'm sorry, if he could do what he does offensively on defense, he'd be – I mean, he'd, we'd be talking about him being an all-star in the next couple of years. Uh, but he, he really needs to beef up his defense. And the thing is, Porzingis is really good in some regards. He can protect the rim, but – there are things that teams can do to take him away from the rim and then they'll find other ways to score. Um, the same way, if you look at what the Spurs have been doing with Kawhi, he's such a good stopper yep. that I watched a game the other night and a lot of people were talking about this on Twitter, that teams are just starting to kind of take the guy that he's guarding and just sticking that person in the corner to pull Kawhi away from the middle of the lane and it's opening stuff up and that's kind of what teams could do to Porzingis. He's, I think I've seen people kind of post a statistic that he actually, I think he might be the best rim protector in the league statistically. Oh, yeah. uh, but in terms of just like the the field goal percentage that he allows when he's with yeah, that yeah, totally. five feet or six feet of the shooter, um, it's like 40% or 41%, which is great. But there's more to it than that because a lot of times he's not going to be the guy right at the rim if teams are able to pull him away on a pick and roll and he has to switch or what have you. So there's a lot that goes into it. But I, I'd be comfortable with him playing there half the time, which is a little sure. bit more than what he did last year. 
let's uh let's talk about him a little bit more too though um because I, I would he's been worrying me with this shooting slump he's in right now he's only shooting you know since the uh minnesota game where he stumbled over carl anthony towns he uh he's only a plus six and we've been we've gone four and one he is shooting 31 percent and just 22 from three he's averaging four fouls a game which i think is going under the radar and this kind of a big one um but yeah he's just hasn't been great his offensive and defensive uh ratings he's got a differential of minus 23.4 i just you know and it, a lot of it at first was attributed to him just taking good shots and missing them you know they were just they were just revving at it or just wasn't falling right is that still the case or is there things that he should still be he needs to work on he needs to improve to get himself out of this slump uh, i i honestly think he'll probably just figure it out i mean i don't I don't know that there was anything way different about his game to start the season. I mean, he did get stronger, whether or not people see it. Um, I'm looking at his numbers right now, and the guy is shooting. He's Even now, even through the slump, which you guys are talking about the shooting, and so I know that's part of yeah. it. It's different. He's still shooting better than 72% from inside of three feet. Last year, he shot less than 58. I mean, that's a huge jump. And when you look at why he's shooting so much better overall – Yes, he's shooting better from distance, but most of the improvement has come from inside of three feet. Um, I mean, he's taking the same number of shots from there, but he's making 15% more of those shots. And that's a huge jump for someone that is as frail as he is. Or I don't want to call him frail now, but you know, he's put on some bulk, but he's still very skinny when you compare him. Lanky, yeah. yeah, like compared to other, like the DeMarcus Cousins of the world and the LeBrons and people that are making a living at the rim. Porzingis is not the first guy that you would think is going to shoot better than 70% from there. So, I mean, that's encouraging. And if honestly, even if he is going to slump a little bit, or even if he was to struggle a little bit from shooting from outside, you could almost be okay with that sort of balance. If he's going to shoot, you know, 65, 70% from three feet. Um, I think, I mean, generally speaking, I think he's, he's young guys are going to go through shooting slumps and I don't worry about that as much. He, he did so well at the beginning that that probably wasn't sustainable, you know, and had all these 25 point games. I mean, I don't think that's going to be an every night thing for him just yet at this point in his career. And the other thing to keep in mind too, Rose, you know, I know he had the back spasm um, that he had to leave the game, but if, if that sort of thing had been kind of bothering him before and he just hadn't said anything, Rose's inability to get as open and to free KP up as much might have been something to look at. And now the fact that Rose isn't there and that he was getting a lot of his feeds from that person, I mean, that's kind of a natural thing to look at in terms of why he might be struggling just a little bit. I was going to say, too, do you think it has anything to do with, you know, kind of two things, maybe the increased volume kind of caught up to him a little bit, maybe. And on top of that, there was, this was kind of a difficult stretch starting with the Oklahoma City game, too, with a lot of the big city face because Cantor and Adams are big boys. And then right after that, you got to go back to back with Towns. And then uh, what did we have? We had Cleveland, and then we had DeMarcus Cousins two times in the last, what, 10 days? So, mm-hmm. I mean, these are difficult guys. I mean, he, he wasn't primarily matched up against all these guys all the time, but, I mean, maybe factor in the volume with those matchups, and maybe that has something to do with it as well? Yeah, they could be any number of things. I mean, I, I, I don't – I'm not terribly worried about it. The, the same way that um, – I, I, I mean, this is the way I handled my work on the beat, too. I tried to be relatively measured if someone is – having an incredible stretch you give it a couple games to see if it lasts and i mean this did last for him i mean it's like 15 games for him where he was just like insanely good and that you could actually make i I know it agitates some of the mellow backers and supporters but i mean you could legitimately have argued that he was their best player for that stretch hell i argued a couple years ago that shumpert for a while was looking like their best player if you remember the way he started the season what was it two years ago before he got traded and then he fell off really really bad um, I mean, so it's not to say that he is their best player, but he was playing that way. And, consistency um, counts. Yeah, consistency counts. And so that's the thing is that Melo, yes, he had the eight-point game. That's not typical of him. Um, he's going to have bad shooting games, but part of what makes Melo such a good player is that you can normally – he's kind of like a lunch pail sort of guy where he's going to get his 20 or 25 every game somehow, some way. And if he's not, he can at least impact the game, especially, like you said, last year and the year before. He could at least make up for that by – getting the assist to get to that point total. Someone else could score. Or when you play a team like the Spurs, like with Kawhi, again, Melo can take one guy completely out or 
can create doubles and then find somebody else who's open. And so that's what KP, I'm not totally sure he's able to do that yet. He doesn't generally command that sort of defensive attention yet to where he's going to make everybody else better as a result of it. Mello sometimes doesn't make total use of that either. And I think you heard Phil allude to that, but, um, <laughs> but, but I mean, that that's, that's why, I mean, he's a second year player and that's why you don't want to generally speaking, you don't want your best player to be a first or second year player because they're going to go through dips and, and peaks and valleys like that. And that's okay. He'll, yeah, he'll get through it. Good. Man, I, uh, I really, I loved Shumper when he first got here. I was, <laughs> I was right. I was all about that. I almost, almost got a Shumper jersey. I, bought, like, <laughs> I, I had a jersey. I, I told oh, you yeah, guys that. I had, I had the jersey. I cut the sleeves off. I wore it around when I played pickup in the summer. I had a good defensive game. I told them I parked them on Shump Street. It was a good time. It was a good time I, in my I life. A couple of Felton jerseys, but that's that's about as far. That's Whoa. that's gross. That's Whoa. disgusting. <laughs> I um I I I keep saying this, and maybe I'll do it now that I've switched jobs. Um, I want to do a story on what. I mean, it sounds like a stupid idea, but like it'll be deeper than this. But like, what goes into a person, a young person's decision to buy a jersey? Oh because, my god! Because the thing is, like. Obviously, you're a fan of that player, obviously. But beyond that, specifically, I, I should clarify too, specifically a Knicks fan, what goes into a Knicks fan's decision to buy a jersey? Because the Knicks, and there are all sorts of statistics that I can pull out to show it, have turned their roster over more than any team over the last nine or ten years. And so like the, the prevailing thought that I have is like anybody that you like is very liable to be dealt or cut yeah. within a year or two of getting the jersey – and if you're getting like a real jersey, jerseys are like expensive, I and think. and they don't stay on the team. Like they they've still KP will obviously be the the exception to this, but they haven't re-signed a first round pick to a multi year deal since Charlie Ward in like 1997 or 1999. Really? Yeah. And so I mean, like that's what we're talking about. Like you can't really attach yourself to any of their young players because they don't stick around. You can't really attach yourself to any of the vets because they normally get them on the back end of their career where they like, you know, it's like getting a Joe Montana Jersey from the Kansas city chiefs, as opposed to the 49ers. Like you get Amari and he's fun, but like within a year and a half of that deal, like it looked really bad. And Tyson was brief and Jason Kidd was for a year. Like there's just nobody. Mello has been really the only constant over that time. And I feel like people have loved him and hated him over the time that he's been here too. I mean, depending on who you are. Yeah. And I mean, who gets a Mello Jersey at this point? You know, if KP is the most exciting guy on the team right now. See, here's my thing. I think that the answer, and I'm not going to tell you how to write your article, but I think that the answer that you're looking for here is hope. I think that because yeah. I had I had a one of I had a Landry Field jersey. Holy hell! I had a number six Landry Field rookie year jersey. <laughs> and now he's no longer in the league. <laughs> Well, yeah. isn't he? Isn't he? What is he? Uh, he's, a, he's in the league, but he's not. He's not in the league. Right. Yes, yeah. he's in the league. So, yeah. I, th- I think it's just something about like just you know the ne- the next maybe not the next great Nick, but the next good Nick player, the guy who's going to stick around for a little while and you know get some kind of equity with the franchise. But relatability yeah, comes with it too. Like you got to see yourself. Like did you did you to some degree see yourself as a hardworking guy like Landry Fields, like a scrappy guy? Yeah, did man, that factor I, into your decision? Yeah, that, that totally. That's exactly how I played every game of basketball I've ever played. Scrappy. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, I don't know. I think it's just I was hopeful about Landry. I resonated with Landry. He was a funny dude. I think that, you know, just likability itself probably goes into it a lot, too. But OK, yeah, I, I want to do that story just because specifically with this fan base, it just. Oh, it's it, it would be like it, it's kind of like a failed investment unless you really unless you're the kind of person that will love a player forever. But, I mean, the other thing about this team, and, like, it's kind of ironic with the once a Nick, always a Nick thing, but then you essentially have Phil sniping people on the way out and, mm-hmm. you know, talking about JR and talking about Shumpert, talking about Shane Larkin and Bargnani, and I, I don't know of anyone that thinks that the once a Nick, always a Nick theme is so strong that it actually extends to Andrea Bargnani. Um, yeah, it applies to everybody who's on the team from, like, prior to 2000 <laughs> excluding right. you have to find ways to exclude certain people because it should not apply to everyone but but that's that's my point though is like the team kind of 
makes enemies or like allow certain people to become enemies of the team or they frame it that way. I mean, even there was even the New York Times story a couple of weeks ago about Charles Oakley and kind yeah. of like how he's essentially been kind of like totally kept at arm's length and ostracized from the team um, when he's literally the guy that I think people probably, if there was any one player from like the last 20 years that people feel like just totally embodies what the city's about. I mean, if you had to rank order them, you probably like Anthony Mason would probably be at the top, but yeah. Oakley would probably be number two, maybe right. number one. I mean, and I'll be really honest, and this is not to knock him at all, like rest in peace, but uh, some people would probably put Mason at the top of the list because he's passed away, whereas Oakley might have yeah. been like their first choice before that. You know, so that's that's what I'm getting yeah, at. It's like, totally. it's just silly. I mean, anyone off that roster, really, you look at. You, the yeah. Team, you look at Starks, people, you look at Oakley. People yeah, just love matter. that group. And so, but that the, the the thing that stands out about that group is that they were consistent and they were there. And like, you haven't had anybody stay on the team for really more than four years other than Melo. I, I mean, you had, I guess you had stat. And well, it is funny because I do take a look at so, that every now and then. Like, I'll just look at, you know, how many years they played for the team. And it it's it was always fascinating to me with Melo because I was just like, man, I, I still sometimes feel like he just got here. And it was the same way with stat. I mean, it's not entirely true at this point, but it's just, you know, it's the same thing with stat when he first got here, too. And then I saw he was the higher senior Nick. I'm like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's my guess as to who, I mean, KP will be around. I, I can't imagine what would have to happen for him to not be there. But yeah. KP, Mello, you figure, is, is probably here for the long haul at this point unless something bad happens. But beyond that, the only thing that really seems to keep people in a Nick uniform is the monetary commitment. You know, So Noah would be my next guest for who will be here in the longest, merely because he's just got such a massive contract now that like already looks kind of bad and like not movable. But other than that, I mean, the other guys – Think about it. Think about how good Shump was. Think about the fact that, like, you, you I mean, you bought a Landry Fields jersey because of the fact that he was really productive at the beginning. And I said this. I've written this before. Landry Fields, Shumpert, um, why am I blinking? Tim Hardaway Jr. Mm-hmm. and KP, you've had four – you've had four different people to make the all-rookie team in a five-year span. And only one of them is still here. And it's just, it's like weird to me. Um, yeah, that, it's weird. One of them's still here and he hasn't even, you know, it's not like we're talking about we've resigned him. It's like you're saying with uh, Charlie Ward earlier. It's, yep. It's just a weird dynamic. I don't know. I mean, but they're, so maybe the fact that they're keeping their draft picks might, maybe, maybe there's hope that they'll, that they'll treat this player development stuff differently. And it seems like they're, I mean, so Kuzminskis is not young, but like, you know, him and Hernan Gomez, like maybe they'll prioritize a little bit more. You know, maybe you have a player in Baker. Um, I don't yeah. think Plumlee is going to be much, but, um, you know, maybe they're committing to it. I mean, they have a, a roster with a lot of young players on it now, which is different than in the past. So, anyway, that took us totally off track. I did not mean to <laughs> well, do that. Well, one last point on that, too. I was going to say, for me to make a – kind of to your point about wanting to write that piece, I take steps now before I go and spend my money for the Knicks. And basically, if I really like a guy, like irrationally, he resonates with me, I won't take the leap to get a jersey until he's like proven that he's going to stay here for a while, like after the rookie deal. So what I'll do is like, Shump, I didn't want to buy a jersey. I held back, went jersey, took it one step lower, saved uh-huh. a little bit of money because I don't want to commit to the to the jersey thing. Once Mello resigned after that summer, I was like, all right, you know what? We get another five years of Mello. <laughs> it's it is now safe to get a Carmelo jersey. Anthony jersey. <laughs> yeah, it's safe. Yeah. So I take I take my baby steps with it because it's like, look, I enjoy jerseys. I have a pretty decent collection that I've had since I was younger, but I can't invest more money, pour more money into it because it makes no sense. It makes no sense to get these jerseys. I'm going to end up like. interviewing you for the story for sure because that's – yeah, I'm sure there are other people that feel the same way. So uh, let's yeah, – uh, let's hop away from what we're wearing. Uh, even though we're <laughs> – I think we're, we're a pretty fashionable group. Um. I do want to kind of touch on this whole, uh, I don't even know what you'd call it with Phil Jackson at this point, but just... Uh, <laughs> That's probably a good description yeah, for I, it. I don't know. Like, and I'm trying. I'm reading Sacred Hoops right now, trying to understand this guy. But uh, I just kind of... Is there... What's going on here? Is he really trying to get underneath Melo's skin? Is there anyone else that like kind of operates in the same way as Phil Jackson that we've seen before? 
what's gonna how's this gonna play out uh, so I, I I don't even pretend to know that I, you know, or act as if I know what really gets this guy to say what he says. Mello essentially said that today at practice, that he's like, I don't, nobody knows why Phil says what he says, but you know he's going to say something else, so you might as well just try to disregard it. I, I get a real impression, and I said this the other day on, on television, I I kind of don't know that he can speak without kind of not twisting a knife because it's not anything that serious, but like kind of getting, getting a dig in at someone. Like, I don't know that he's capable of speaking without critiquing something or kind of having like an explosive sort of quote. And and I mean, like I could give you examples of that because sometimes, you know, I've, I've seen people go to Twitter to defend him and I've seen people say, well, Phil was asked about this. So like, what was he supposed to say? I mean, you can be asked about anything and and decline to really give like the red meat or the bait or take the bait with the stuff. But I mean, I remember one time I asked Phil what direction he wanted to take in free agency. And Phil started talking about the value of trying to build organically as opposed to just going out and getting, building a super team through free agency the way that Miami did. And he then referenced like the success that San Antonio has had. And then turned it he called them a dynasty and then was like well actually you know they're not a dynasty so to speak because a dynasty would mean that you've won more than one title in a row and they've never done that and he was like very clearly people saw it as him taking a shot at pop and it's like did you really have to like make that distinction like it's just like not appropriate and and it serves no purpose like the same thing LeBron and the idea that LeBron travels every time he catches the ball on the move. Like that made no sense to bring up. And and I could tell you why it made no sense to bring up like between that and like the whole posse thing. It it is such a bad idea to do that. If for no other reason than the fact that now Melo and LeBron have said publicly that they'd like to play with each other at the end of their career. Like, is that going to happen in New York? Probably not. But now you've essentially, like, if Phil is still here, you've essentially guaranteed that that won't happen because LeBron wants nothing to do with Phil. So, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to blow it up into this sort of thing where, like, Phil torpedoed that. But at the same time, like, you don't – it's not a good idea to, to potentially alienate the best player in the league or the, the guy that has been the best player in the league. And so I just don't know between that and, – and I said this on television too the, – the Phil Chronicles that he does at the end of every year with Charlie Rosen where he's critiquing every single player on the roster – I just don't understand the, what purpose it serves other than to kind of piss people off. Like if it was a book and Phil was making money off it, I could kind of understand it, but it wouldn't be appropriate to do in the midst of everything right now. Like you wait until you're done and you have a tell all. And then like, if Phil were still out of the league, fine. But Phil is a sitting team president who has to try to go well, see, recruit the these guys with, with Phil right there is that, you know, he is a sitting team president and, it's just I always feel like it with Phil, you know, when it comes to him and running the team. There's two separate Phil Jacksons. There's the Phil Jackson who's got his mind on Phil Jackson, and there's the Phil Jackson who's got his mind on the Knicks. The Phil Jackson who's got his mind on the Knicks, you know, selected KP, signed, uh, you know, he was part of the team who signed Robin Lopez to a very manageable deal. And then you got the Phil Jackson who cares about Phil Jackson who's out there, you know, making all these grandiose comments and, you know, talking himself into circles and, you know, arguably giving up too much for Derrick Rose and you're you know, paying way too much for Joakim Noah at that point. It just seems like there's certain decisions from him that are very heavily influenced by what his leg, what he wants his legacy to be. And he's kind of waiting for everything to play out and certain decisions that are for the good of the team, but definitely a divide I feel between the two. I, well, I should, Kyle, did you, did you want to chime in at all on that? Um, I, Cut in and out with my internet real quick, so you got to repeat the very last part of what you said. No, no, no problem. Um, we were we were just talking about Phil and kind of like how, how what do you make of what he's saying and why he's saying it, and what his motivation is, and and all that. Well, the one part I did catch was it, it serves no, like you said, it serves no purpose. It makes no sense. Like you're not helping the situation in any capacity, and it's not even like these are significant critiques, like they again serve no purpose that it, it kind of ends there it makes no sense it, it does no good like the posse thing like where what 
good could have come from that. What anything could have come from that other than backlash. Like, and he's kind of done this there. Yeah. And I mean, he's a smart guy. He, he's a very intelligent guy. And whether it's a superiority complex, whether it's, it, it could be a bunch of different things, but he just seems to be a very egocentric guy. And he just needs to get these shots over his career. He just gets these shots off. Yeah. I, I I don't know if it makes him feel better. I, I don't know, but it, it strikes me as odd. And yeah, I, Again, I, I don't think a, a LeBron thing, like you were saying too. I, I don't think that was ever really going to happen. But why, why make sure it doesn't happen either? Right. Exactly. You know? It seems like the opposite of what you should be doing as the president of a team. You, know, you yeah. should be driving people in, and like even if there's people who you don't want joining your team that you're bringing towards you, you have the power to say no to them. You can't yeah. push someone away and then tell them, "Wait, just, just, yeah, you know, just, just come sign with us." It'll yeah, it's. It, I mean, I think it's already challenging enough to to do the job but like when you I, I don't know it just it, it, it just seems really silly when you think about how close it, it could I mean that could actually have like a really big domino effect Chris Paul yeah. is probably going to be a free agent and Chris Paul is best friends with these guys that's I mean, the next it, pipe dream so and so it's just it just I mean these guys are also all in power together with the the players union and so it's just it just the, like the cascading effect that that could have like I don't want to speculate too much on like what it will do or what it will mean, but it just it just isn't it just serves no purpose. It's a risk. It's not worth taking. I don't. I, I mean, it, it, it's just again like it was a, a throwaway answer in a Q and A, but I mean, and, and I will touch on this a little bit. I do. The first time I read the comment, I thought it was like blown a little bit out of proportion. You know, first LeBron before LeBron said anything, it was like his business partner that said something. I think it was Maverick Carter that said something. And then after that, LeBron chimed in and probably because Mav did. But I mean, when I actually went and like saw what Phil had written before in a book and what he defined posse to mean, basically saying like, these are the guys that go fetch women for these guys and like go get their cars for them because they're essentially not mature enough to do this stuff on their own. And they have like their boys to do it. I mean, I'll be really honest, like if and then and then also went on to say that these guys like have maturity problems because they, you know, and that they grow up to never mature fully because they never have to do anything for themselves. I mean, LeBron really hasn't shown. And I mean, I know some people are going to be like, well, he is immature because he was playing the he was flipping his bottle at MSG. Like, I'm not. There are so many more serious things in the world. Like when you think about so many players that get in trouble. LeBron's never been in trouble. And like, it's not, it's not to say that like I was expecting him to or hoping that he would, but like pretty much everybody else has, or like has gotten in some sort of serious trouble for something or like something that grabbed headlines for a really, really negative reason. You could point to the decision, which I do think actually was like kind of immature. I would probably put that more on the people around him that didn't tell him this is a really bad idea. But I mean, if the worst thing that you can point to over someone's career is like that they made a decision to take another job and did it in a way that you didn't like, or that they didn't give their two weeks notice was essentially what that was like, fine. But like, I think he, he essentially apologized for that. and said he could have done it differently. Yeah. But and, it also goes back into the, you know, the point you were making too, with LeBron's ever been in trouble guy. Right. You know, the guy's under, he's a poster child of the league. He's been for, you know, a long time now. The, the amount of pressure the guy's under, I'm sure he could have. He, he came into the league at like times. 18 or yeah. I, I don't even think he was 19 years old. He's been the face of the league, maybe not immediately since then, but like probably at least for the last nine years. Yeah, he's been wildly knowledge. Yeah. And, and I just, I, the, I mean, and I think Phil, to, I, I would say to his credit, he, Phil never wants to be pinned down on anything, I don't think, in terms of, like, what he's saying. So he kind of said, I could regret this. Like, he he wouldn't just come out and apologize. Does he need to? I don't know. Like, if he does, that's between him and LeBron. But he very much doesn't ever like to be pinned down. I remember one time we asked, like, um, you know, he said something about – it was this time last year we were asking about the trade deadline when the Knicks were uh, – or, or maybe it was two years ago. I can't remember. We we asked about the trade deadline, and he said, "Well, clearly we have guys that are, um, you know, we have people on the roster that are like untouchable or that we're not going to." Yeah, I can't remember what he said, but basically, like, someone asked, "Would you consider trading Melo?" 
And he said, well, he has a no trade clause. That's not what we asked you. We asked, <laughs> what do you consider trading Melo? And then only after do people realize, they go back like, actually, he didn't really answer the question. Like he just mm-hmm. stated the obvious, but he, he answers stuff in a very, very like different sort of way that is a good enough answer, but also doesn't fully answer the question because he doesn't like to be pinned down. He's very good at being vague in a way that leaves himself some wiggle room to kind of explain something differently if it gets criticized one way or the other. It's, it's like an art. I actually yeah. think it's very yeah. smart to deal with the media that way. It's, um, it's absolutely his brand. It's just how he, I think it's how he worked. I think that's the Zen master working right there. Right there. Yeah. He needs um, the Zen to keep mellow from getting frustrated. Yeah. <laughs> those two just going head to head. Yeah. It's that, although I don't think it's that big a deal. He's essentially said the same thing before. I just thought the timing was odd here. One, he just put his foot in his mouth with the whole LeBron thing. Mm-hmm. And two, they, they had just been playing so well and it just didn't, just didn't make sense. I mean, and the timing was just really off. I thought his domino, like you were talking about the domino effect that it might have, you know, you can't really speculate on it, but you never know. It's the same thing with just kind of how he talks. You know, you never really know how his words might domino. They just kind of, I thought it was really interesting that Carmelo essentially sided with LeBron on that issue too. I mean, um, they're, they're best friends. So it, it, it shouldn't be that shocking, but it'd be one thing if Carmelo sided with LeBron privately but to say it to the media, like he has to really feel that way, you would think. And I, I think that's why Phil probably felt even more like he should apologize. Um, or, 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 I mean, like I said, he didn't apologize, but that, he, was could a some, that he could feel some regret. I mean, Ugh. it's just, it, it, Phil, I, I will say this. I, I, I like Phil Jackson. I love dealing with him. He's polite to me. We email back and forth here and there. I, But I do think there, there's a little bit of smugness and there's a little bit of ego there. And I don't think... Like, even if he was wrong, like he said, he didn't understand the connotation of the word posse or how someone could, like, think of it that way. But Phil defined it himself in his book. He literally said a posse, he basically said a posse is this, and guys don't mature because of this sort of thing. And then, like, was taken aback when someone said, that's a really nasty connotation. But Phil gave it a connotation himself. So, like, I think he he could have apologized and it would have been welcome. I think um, LeBron, you know, probably made a bigger deal of it than I would have. But when, you know, I probably would have been been out of shape too, especially when you consider that KP came into the league essentially at the same age LeBron did. KP has his brothers and his family around and like people that are that deal with his agency and stuff, they're always around. And I mean, when you think about it, I don't know if like the word posse gets used much anyway by anybody of any race, but like, I mean... KP, this is what bothers me, and now I'm going on a rant, and I don't mean to. Um, <laughs> when you think about KP, I mean, he's he's by all means like a, a good guy. I, I love dealing with him. He's very level-headed, knows the reporters by name, treats us with respect, has never blown us off, always has extra time. Um, you know, like a, a, a seemingly a model citizen as well. But it rubbed me the wrong way when people took the Jaleel Okafor stuff that happened last year with the speeding and the the fight or whatever outside of Boston and like took that. And then when the Knicks were getting ready to play Philly, the Nick beat and I'm part of it too. I didn't ask the question, but I was there. And so maybe I take blame for this or not saying anything or for not redirecting the conversation, walking up to KP and saying like, KP, what is your, your group that's around you, your brothers and you know, the people that stand around you, like, how have they helped you keep like a level head on your shoulders and kind of like kind of this white black thing very clearly in terms yeah. of like between him and Okafor and like you haven't gotten in trouble. How have you managed not to do that? And it's like, you know, you, you can't pick and choose when you're going to say that someone's posse builds them up and helps them stay out of trouble. And then on the other hand, like essentially say that LeBron's posse or anyone else's posse just serves to like, get them women like it, it's yeah, just a really ugly connotation i think we pick and choose sometimes and it's it's something that like frankly do i think phil's racist do i think it was a racist remark no not necessarily i don't think phil is prejudiced in that way but i think sometimes we can have blind spots and not know that when we say something that it does have a really nasty connotation to it without yeah. knowing and like in some ways did, did he need to apologize to lebron no but like you could almost thank someone for saying like I didn't think about that way. Like it would have been a really, it would have been really big of Phil to kind of have looked at it that way. I actually think 
because yeah. I, I think especially when you've just drafted someone that has a posse, so to speak, of his own around all the time to keep him level-headed. Some people use it for that purpose, and there's nothing wrong with that. I agree. Yeah. I think it speaks to the his carelessness a little bit, uh, Phil, when he's using his words, and I think that's what kind of makes a lot of Knicks fans fearful. It's just if he's being this careless when choosing his words, how careless is he being while running the team? Um, so kind of want to uh, hop off the Knicks a little bit and talk a little bit more about what you're doing, Chris. Okay. Um, what's, uh, what's going on at 538? What's, what's, what are you working on? A uh, bunch of different stuff trying to work on, like, I've, I haven't really, so 538, and this is one of the things I told them when I was interviewing with them and meeting with them that I wanted to change a little bit. Their, their sports stuff doesn't do a whole lot of reporting. Um, you know, it's, it's so heavy into the numbers a lot of the yeah. time that people know it more for the numbers. People know it for what's the likelihood that this will happen or the probability that this will happen or that this will Certainly. happen. And so I, I told them, look, if I get there, like I, I was at the journal, I was in the locker rooms all the time. I was at practices. I traveled. These guys knew me by name. They knew to look for my stories. They seemingly appreciated the sorts of questions I asked them that were kind of off the beaten path and kind of made them think a little bit. And I think, I think I'm probably a better interviewer than I am a writer, you know, in terms of what questions I ask, um, to kind of just mix things up and to keep people on their toes and, and to learn something about someone that you might not already know, especially for a reader. So I told them that, but I haven't really had an opportunity to do that. Um, like inside baseball, some of it, like you need a corporate card to travel, you know, essentially like a corporate credit card to like start booking reservations to travel. So I need to pick out where I'm going to go. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been trying to get to know the people that I'm going to work with. I'm here in Chicago now. But the, they're headquartered in five, at 538 in New York. And so, you know, since I'm going to be working remotely so much, I still want to know these people that I'm working with and these people that are editing my stories and yeah, that I'm talking to day to day. And so I wanted to spend the first few weeks in the office there. Um, so I'm just now kind of setting out on my own in Chicago. Um, as you all know, I was trying to set up the time to talk with you guys because I was coming back today through a snowstorm. So, um, so anyway... Well, no, you know, I was late, so I apologize for that. But anyway, um, but anyway, so I'm I'm just now getting to a point where I'm like, I've only gone to like three or four games all season of any team. Um, and so that that says a lot, because by this point, I, you know, normally would have been at almost 25 with just the Knicks alone. And so um, I'm happy and kind of excited to get back in the lockers because everything I've been doing so far has been mostly based on watching film, like reading up on what other reporters are writing and what the players are saying in the, in the locker rooms, um, looking at the numbers and kind of at, at lineup data and stuff like that. And that's fine. Cause I, I feel like, you know, that's essentially what Zach Lowe does. And a lot of people do that, mm-hmm. but I've always felt like my reporting and like my in locker room conversations set aside my, you know, my work differently. So I'm, I'm working on a couple things. I, I think I have something later this coming week on the bulls that should be really fun. Um, that I've kind of been curious about for a while. And I think I finally have the data to kind of back what I'm saying. And now that I'm in Chicago, I can probably talk to them about it and get some quotes in the story as opposed to just kind of a theory that I have. You know, I could actually solidify it with some reporting. And I have a story that I'm working on that probably, hopefully by the end of the year will be out that will kind of have a bunch of cameos from the Knicks in there between Rose and Noah that I've been working on since preseason that I think will be really fun. I just need a little bit more stuff to make that come together. But I've, I've got I'm, – I'm looking forward to doing some projects because I can write about teams and, you know, what's happening on the court all day long. But I, I like to write about stuff that's off-court or gets into other stuff. And I think that's kind of what sets some of my work apart with the journal. And I want to start bringing that to 538. So it's been fun, but I'm, I'm looking forward to kind of bringing the reporting element to what I do to 538 because I think that will benefit us a lot. Yeah, no. One thing that you know, when we spoke the the last time after the open practice, you know, one reason that we've kind of always consistently gone to your writing too is there's there's a lot of guys who write about basketball. Like we write about basketball, but not not all of us are the best at incorporating all these new analytics and stats and and being able to tell a story with it as smoothly. You know, sometimes we're just throwing numbers out there and it doesn't really transition as well and one thing we've always gone to with you is it kind of flows. It actually makes sense. You actually can tell the story with the numbers. And that's, I mean, probably why you 
wanted to go to 538 of imagining is because that's something that you're able to do. And only a couple of guys are really able to do that well. And I think that that's a really good platform for you to be at. I feel like you'd feel the same there. And it's just, um, I mean, for example, I think the one thing I brought up to you the last time was there was like that little driving kick stat that you brought up with Derek Rose. It was like he passes out of things like twice the time, you know, and you were able to kind of tell a story about how he's going to fit in with the Knicks and KP and Melo. And it's like little things like that, that, you know, we were excited about all the time. So I think this kind of is just a really good fit at 538. It's just, I don't know. I mean, what in terms of uh, maybe not advice, but like, do you think things get lost a lot of times, I guess, when we try to report on numbers all the time and we try to tell a story, for example, like if Derek Rose is, is bad at defense you know we're just bringing up like raw numbers like d rating and you know net rating and things like sure. that it, it gets it becomes hard to i guess tell us the story we want at times well, is, i mean is, is there an art to it that that you um try to do i mean so first of all i'll start by saying that i'm i'm not always right you know and, and sometimes like i even have to say this in the stories that i write like i, I did one about minnesota and a lot of people kept bringing up Minnesota's historically bad in third quarters. They're awful. They're the worst in the league. And I knew that too. I had the numbers sitting right in front of me. My question, I guess what I'm always challenging myself to do, and in some ways this is actually cool that so many people are trying to use numbers now because it kind of forces me to up my game because if everyone's using numbers, then using numbers doesn't make you different anymore. And so you have to kind of find a new way to use it or like really add value to what you're doing. So my challenge is to try to take stuff a step further. So not pointing out that the Timberwolves third quarters are garbage, but like, why are they garbage? And so, you know, a, a mix of film, you know, ideally, and this is what I was saying, like that I'll be able to do in the next couple of weeks, reporting, you know, not just assuming that I know it all and getting into the locker rooms and asking people and asking Thibodeau and asking Carl Towns, but also, you know, like looking at, what other factors could play into certain things. So like D Rose isn't on the court by himself defensively. Now, granted, there are some things that tools that I have and other people have scouts have where you can get certain things like, you know, there are some websites out there that, you know, that we're like trying to lock down deals with where we are at 38 that will tell you like a blow by percentage, like what percentage of the time a specific defender lets the person that he's guarding blow by him on a drive because he's not able to contain. And so there's crazy stuff out there. Like anything that you can think of is probably out there, whether there's actually a stat for it that you can find or not, there probably is one. Um, but my job is like to, to figure out, okay, so Derek Rose, yes, he's probably a poor defender. You can probably watch and see that. But if he's a poor defender, like what things factor into that? And are there things that are outside of his control, like his teammates? Is he constantly out there with um, – like Hernan Gomez, for instance, like if Hernan Gomez is not a rim protector and Rose is constantly playing with, with Willie, Billy, as I should say, um, you know, if that's part of the reason why that, you know, their defense would really be horrible and that their, his D rating would be bad is like, well, he's spending all his minutes out there with another bad defender or with like literally the worst kind of defender you could have out there with Rose is someone who's a bad rim protector because Rose doesn't contain very well. And so to factor in that sort of thing, to factor in like, you know, we could have said with Rose, his drive and kick percentage, essentially, maybe in Chicago, like, I, you know, a blind spot in my own data could have been like, maybe Rose wasn't passing the ball. Maybe he's actually a very willing passer, but he's not going to pass to guys that can't shoot. And so the Bulls were one of the worst three-point shooting teams in the league for years um, after they let go of Corver. Well, maybe that's why Rose doesn't really kick the ball out on drives or pass the ball on drives is because there's no one – you can't pass it to Noah because Noah's not going to finish. He's horrible at the rim. But then also, aside from, like, McDermott, who wasn't a starter, and I guess Miritich, like, you really didn't have any shooters on that team. And so there are different reasons. Those are the sorts of things that I think I would challenge people to do. Like, I see people constantly cite this row statistic that when Rose takes 15 or more shots, they're, like, 2-9. and nine, But then when he takes less than that, they're, like, you know – whatever they are, nine and two or whatever it is. Like, that's an interesting statistic. It's interesting on its own, but it also kind of speaks to like a very elementary level reading of it because frankly, um, 
Derrick Rose might be looking to take more shots at the end of a game where they're getting blasted or, you know, because, you know, it could be stat padding. It could be that Carmelo has been awful and that he's trying to take shots to, you know, avoid Melo. Not if Melo's not playing well, like Derrick Rose might try to take it upon himself. It might speak more to his mentality of how to play. And there are numbers that I could look at, like the media, actually even just the normal NBA.com stat site has numbers that you can look at, like, how people perform when they're down by a certain number of points. Um, if a team is down, if you're down by 11 to 15, how Derrick Rose shoots or how frequently he shoots per 36 minutes. So there are all sorts of things you can look at. Um, and it's not that hard. I, I don't expect like the average fan to just know where that stuff is, but that's the kind of stuff I hold myself to is like, you can't just look at a stat, like even plus minus is like, it's, if it seems that simple to explain away just really easily, then it's probably not that simple because right. it, there's other factors that go into it. And I mean, that's kind of the, the problem that I think there is with numbers now is that now there's such a big part of the fabric. And, and now, so people that want to be involved in those conversations will like pick one stat and fall in love with it. And there are other factors that go into those sorts of things. Like plus minus is not as much as I do think it is a decent indicator and a good place to start. You still have to look at who they're playing with. You have to look at when they're playing you have to look at like the position that they're playing. Like someone's plus minus could be totally different at one position than another. Um, it could be totally different in one quarter than another um, because of who they're playing with at, at different times. So, I mean, that that's the sort of thing I look at. And then obviously you want to look at film or pay really close attention during the games to be able to kind of confirm or deny what you're thinking. Um, and the other thing, and the last thing I'll say is that, it's still so early in the season where like a lot of these numbers are going to change. And so that's the, like, sometimes I see people having field days at the beginning of seasons, like saying this guy is doing this. And it's like, yeah, but it's not like, I remember writing at the beginning of last season that KP was shooting like 60% off passes from Jaron Grant, that that showed that they should be playing those two more together more because they're both pick and roll specialists. And I mean that you could make that argument on your own without numbers that they might fit better because they play the same style. By the end of the season, like KP's shooting percentage off Grant's passes were awful, was awful. And so, you know, like I could bolster my point making, you know, saying something like that. But at the same time, like it doesn't prove anything, especially not 10, 12, 15 games into a season. So that's all. But there's so many different things that go into it. And my, my advice for people would be like, if you find one number, try to find something almost like math. Find ways to check your work. Find ways to actually verify that that's true beyond just a number that suggested it might be true. That would be my best advice for people. I, I have one quick question. You brought up that there's a blow-by percentage. Who tracks the blow-by percentage? It's because a, that is so specific. It is a very, very, very high tech. I think it's called Lots second spectrum. Yeah, second spectrum, which is like, it makes synergy look like basketball reference. Like, it's crazy. Um, and it's it's not, and like, as, as I say that, like, it's not even something that I have access to regularly but it was something that someone at ESPN showed me. And I was like, whoa, this is like life changing. Um, like it's, it's the way it categorizes stuff and the way that it pulls together film. Um, there's just so much cool stuff out there. And th- so that gives you a sense of what the teams are able to use and the scouts and stuff like that are able to use. You can, you can look at stuff. If you just want to look at a possession involving three specific players, maybe two guys from one team and one guy from another to see how one guy defends a pick and roll involving two specific players you could pull that up in five seconds it's it's nuts it's it's incredible but and it's it's like again it's just another tool i don't think it's a very accessible one yet maybe someday but um you know there's just so many tools out there and like that's why i I think for me because i do have access to some of these tools i have like a greater mandate to be able to check my work than just saying like this guy has this plus minus like that's great but like do you have anything else to verify that this is an actual trend beyond like a random number that some people use to cite their work. Yeah. With great power comes great responsibility, I guess. <laughs> um, are there any, uh, any games you're particularly uh, excited for coming up? Anything you're going to go to? Uh, not really. I mean, I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to write something in, in anticipation of the Bulls Timberwolves game Tuesday, because it'll be Thibodeau's first return. Ooh, to nice. Chicago, um, but I, I do think the piece about the Bulls will be fun. Probably for my Chicago friends, since I'm from here, I know they'll love it. I was talking to my best friend, and I was like, "Yeah, like, why don't you help me with this? Like, what, do you have any theories on this thing? You know, the, on this idea that I have?" And he 
he was like so excited to feel like he had a part in my story. He's not going to write it for me or anything like that, but just <laughs> they watch the Bulls almost more than I do. And so it's like cool yeah. to do that. But um, I won't, I won't divulge too much about what the specific idea is, but I think it'll be cool or interesting, probably frustrating the Bulls fans when they see exactly what the idea is, but they'll probably be like, I knew this was happening and they'll, they'll like having something that will kind of confirm or deny what, what that thought was. That's all right. You're just being the eye opener for them. Um, I guess I think that's about it for this week. Uh, yeah, I guess uh, thanks a lot, Chris, for coming on. It's really uh, great getting some insight from you and just being able to cover a lot of topics we've been needing some more insight on. So, no problem at all. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate you guys having me on again. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so, you, can, uh, uh, you can find Chris at, uh, on Twitter at HerringMBA, uh, Herring underscore MBA, I should say. And also take a look at what he's got coming up at 538.com. Uh, best of luck to you with everything over there. Um, yeah, you guys just make sure to check out Twitter, Facebook. Uh, we got a piece coming up on the site on, uh, from our man Ty, Ty Jordan on Melo's Clutches. Actually, it just went up earlier this week, I think. Uh, so probably some stat-driven stuff going in there. Uh, and take a look next week, too, because Brendan Duvall's got a look at the 2017 NBA draft class. And hopefully we keep that pick and we might figure out where we're going to end off. And uh, don't forget about previews and recaps before and after every game. Thanks again, Chris. I'll talk to you next week, Kyle. Yep, we're talking to you, Chris. Thanks a lot for coming on. Thank you, guys. Be careful. Keep track.